The reading for today is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 30. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Andrea. Good morning, Arcadia. Happy New Year. I'm off of Merry Christmas, so I'm moving on. Anybody? No, I guess not. All right. So good to see you. Uh, welcome. My name is Frank. If you're new, we're glad you're here. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Redemption Church Arcadia. Uh, if you're wondering why we're, uh, we're always, oh yeah, fourth through, fourth through sixth graders need to be dismissed. Forgot that. Yes. Fourth through, fourth through sixth graders. My wife is now a fourth through sixth grader. Okay, that's cool. <clears throat> anyway. Um, if you're wondering why I keep saying Redemption Church Arcadia is if you don't know where you are, it's because uh, Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations in Arizona, and so we call ourselves Redemption Church and then wherever the location is. And we are in Arcadia, so we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We're glad that you're here. This passage that Andrea just read, I referenced on Christmas Eve and thought we'd go into it a little bit uh, more deeply uh, this morning on this sort of one-off. Next Sunday, we're going to be doing the past year, present year that we always do. Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, his outline uh, that he did for 30 years, and now we're just continuing uh, the tradition, only we're going to do it a little bit different uh, this time. We're going to have uh, one of the elders, Joe Ponce, and I are going to sit together and have a discussion about it. And we've already sort of worked through it unscripted, but kind of just talked about what we'd talk about. I think it's going to be really good, and it'll be a little bit different than what we've uh, done in the past. Uh, speaking of our elders, I wanted to mention that one of our elders uh, today, Jim Moreland, who is out in live stream land. Hi, Jim and Pat, if you are watching. Uh, today is Jim's birthday. I believe today he is 81 years old. I quit keeping track of his birthdays uh, when he turned 70. I just figured he's older than 70 now. But now I'm getting Yeah, so anyway. But happy birthday, Jim. Um, I will also tell you that Jim has always hated the fact that his birthday is on December 26th because it's kind of a letdown after Jesus' birthday. So 
Anyway, um, let's see, what else? Anything else that we need to talk about? Well, one other thing, I just want to remind you again to put on your calendars. Uh, Sunday, January 16th at 4 o'clock, we're having our annual church picnic, which wasn't so annual last year because we had to skip it because of COVID. But we are having it again this year, 4 o'clock, January 16th, out on the grass. We're going to have everything. Bruce Brown is going to be uh, grilling hamburgers and cheeseburgers for us. We're going to have bouncy houses and all kinds of other stuff from 4 to 6. Please um, plan to be here for that, for really good hamburgers. So um, I want to sort of introduce this, not sort of, I'm going to introduce this passage with a discussion about some sort of some chatter in the public sphere lately and even a couple of quotes. Here's a quote from Rebecca Cantu, who happens to be a character on a very popular trendy cultural uh, cable show. Uh, she says, legacy is important, legacy is essential. And then here's a quote that I'm, I'm attributing to a large group of people, because I hear it from virtually everybody in that group uh, when I teach at Paradise Valley Community College. Uh, it's this quote, I am going to change the world. I hear that from virtually every millennial and Gen Zer that I teach at Paradise Valley Community. Sooner or later, they're going to get up and say, no, I'm going to change. No, I'm going to change. They're all going to change uh, the world. And that's a legacy statement um, as well, or at least an attempt at one. I don't know if you're aware of this. There is a current uh, trending, rising popularity in something called a personal legacy statement. How many of you have a person? Anybody in here have a personal it's very important. You need to have a personal legacy statement. You should put it on all of your social media profiles and make sure that everybody else is aware of it. What is a personal legacy statement? It's something that you write, uh, you write out about yourself that you believe is so good that it will always be passed on and on and on to others. And then I have added making you a hero in your own mind. I added that last part. But that's what it is. It's just this uh, we just become, we are becoming more and more myopic about ourselves in our culture. Everything just keeps pressing uh, that way. And, and here's what I would suggest that we know as uh, followers of Christ. Here, we, here is what we know is true. Jesus has changed the world. Jesus has given us a legacy, and it's a legacy that no other legacy can match. And if you look in this passage that Andrea read for us, it's a little bit mind-boggling those he has chosen to employ this legacy. He's left it to us in order to carry this legacy on. But here's where we are, however, in today's world. This sort of dovetails now. I'm going to be quoting extensively from Alex Ryrie's September 2, 2020 essay, called The Cross and the Swastika, Ryrie argues that as recently as 60 years ago, Jesus was our most cogent moral example. He was our legacy example as recently as 60 years ago. But today, in our culture, we've decided to go negative. I don't know if you've noticed that. He makes this argument quite well. We've decided to go negative, and we seem to like it. It seems as though everybody's happy about going negative. Uh, it, it seems as though, as Ryrie writes, that the ultimate insult today is not, you know, you should really be more like Jesus. That used to be kind of an insulting thing that somebody could say. 
I know some of you in this crowd are like, I don't remember that. You're not old enough to remember that, okay? But that used to be a thing. But now the ultimate insult is, of course, you are a Nazi. Or if they want to get more specific, you are Hitler, okay? So he writes this. Crosses and crucifix have lost their power in our culture. You can play with them. You can even joke about them, and no one really minds. But you don't play with swastikas. Our sacred story used to be religious and holy. Now it is secular and evil. Ryrie continues. In reality, evil rarely appears in such unambiguous dress. Most evils are shyer and more subtle than Hitler and Nazis. Think about Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent. Very, very subtle. There are now reasons to suspect our new sacred essay, which is everyone is Hitler, is running into problems. And then he quotes Goodwin's Law. Has anybody heard of Goodwin's Law? Well, now you're going to hear of it. Here's Goodwin's Law. All online arguments eventually end with someone calling someone else a Nazi. That's true. Um, About a year ago, uh, when I was insane, I was still on Twitter. I I got sane about a year ago, and I got off Twitter. But I, I used to be insane, and I was on Twitter. And and I remember that somebody posted on Twitter just a pro-life message. That's it. I'm pro-life, unashamedly, unapologetically. I'm pro-life. Somebody, (laughs) that's that's too bad that we have to be that excited in church about that, by the way. So I'm pro-life, and somebody had posted on Twitter a pro-life message. And I liked it. You know, the little heart. I just, I liked, that's it. I liked it. And somebody tweeted back to me that I was a Nazi. So, that, yeah, that's Goodwin's Law right there. I, I experienced Goodwin's Law. Ryrie continues, the jump from Jesus to Hitler takes us from positive to negative exemplar. We know what evil is, but we are no longer sure what goodness is. That interesting. We know what we hate but not what we love. Condemning evil is part of any ethical system, to be sure, but perhaps we should devote more energy to finding something that we can see as good. Here you go. That good thing would be the gospel. I'm here to tell you it's the gospel. That's the good thing. We have the good news. So he says, it looks as though our new post-Christian value system is starting to fail. That's good news. I know you're probably sitting there thinking, this is a horribly negative essay. But actually, it's good news because what he, the conclusion he comes to is that this system is actually starting to fail. People are beginning to realize it's not working in our world. It's almost as if people are starting to get 1 Corinthians chapter 1, even though they might not have any idea what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is. So what I want to do is just walk through this message, this passage a little bit. But I'm going to start with verse 17, the verse right before this passage, because it helps to set context. So here's what Paul writes in the verse before he starts this passage. Christ did not send me, that's the Apostle Paul, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, why would Paul say something like this? Uh, Bruce Winner, who is a New Testament scholar, he writes this. In Paul's context, a first century orator or public speaker 
was expected to produce carefully crafted speeches which drew attention to the skillful use of rhetoric, thus making the speaker the hero. Paul is very careful to remind his audiences that he is not the hero, Jesus is, and it is the dreadful cross that gives us salvation and power. So what Paul is trying to do is help us remember that even though Paul is very intelligent, he's one of the smartest people who's ever lived, he's very good with rhetoric, it's not any of that that's important, it's the power of the cross, it's Jesus that he wants to lift up. So for 18 years, I taught uh, communication at Fuller Seminary Southwest here in Phoenix. Uh, from 2001 to 2018, I was the professor of communication for the extension here at Fuller Seminary. So I was teaching uh, beginning communication, COM 500, and advanced communication, COM 503. And I always started every one of those um, uh, semesters or quarters by reading to the students because they're seminary students. They're in Jesus school, so to speak, and they're learning how to communicate the gospel to people. And, and I have some rhetorical training and some rhetorical background, but I, was, I would always start every quarter reading to them this passage right here, which comes right after our passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where Paul explains a little bit more about what he's trying to get at. He writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and, the, and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so what I was trying to point out to the students uh, was, look, we're going we're gonna to talk about rhetorical devices, rhetorical um, uh, tools. We're going we're gonna to help you understand maybe how to construct a message in, a, in an organized way that has some flow and some good argument to it. But ultimately, if you think that's where the power lies, your ministry is not going to work very well. Because the power is in Christ and the cross. And so Paul bookends this passage about God's wisdom and human wisdom in verses 18 through 30 with this understanding that it's not Paul, it's Jesus. It's not the person preaching or teaching, it's Jesus. And we need to understand that. And he is the legacy, he is the power, and he brings what is good news. And that's what we should rest in and concentrate on. And it's not that good rhetoric isn't helpful. Please, please understand, it's not that good rhetoric isn't helpful. Jack Parr once wrote that the greatest sin is to be dull, and I would agree with him. It's not that we seek to be dull, that would also be a problem, but rhetoric is not what saved. It's, saves. it's God through Jesus Christ by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that saves. So now we look at our passage, starting with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly... Or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, as pointed out in the intro today, even Paul says that the idea of the cross is cause for loathing, even in his context. 
So this, this idea of the crucifix not having any power is not necessarily a new thing in our culture today. This was around uh, 2,000 years ago, as a matter of fact. And yet, it is the cross of Christ where true power resides. So those of us who are in Christ are the only ones with the opportunity to know and understand that, with the opportunity to know and understand that. And I say opportunity, unfortunately, because... Even many Christians are still not fully on board with the joy, grace, love, and power that we have in Jesus' crucifixion. We claim to know Christ, but we still walk, as Paul says here, as fools, giving power to the foolishness of this world. So throughout this passage, Paul uses this word folly or foolishness. You might even interpret it or translate it as foolhardy. It's the Greek word moros. We get the English word moron from this Greek word. So when you see in the New Testament foolish or uh, folly, think moronic, okay? That's what he's saying, okay? And then look at verse 19. He's quoting here, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, which is the Old Testament. And Isaiah here in chapter 29 is talking about a time when Israel, God's people, this is like 600 years, 600, 700 years before um, Paul was writing this. It's a time when God's people followed the supposedly wise human advice instead of listening to and trusting God, listening to his very clear instruction through the prophets, And they formed an alliance against God's better counsel with Egypt in order to to strengthen their position against the Assyrian invaders. And what was really needed, however, was to have faith and trust in God and in his power in order to deliver them from the enemy. God and trust in his power is what they needed. And part of the reason that God allowed the Assyrians to sack Israel in 722 B.C. was for this very reason, that they trusted the supposed wisdom of human leaders and not in God. This is where God would say in the Old Testament, human wisdom is folly. But humans think my wisdom, God's wisdom, is folly. So applying that to that to us today, here's a question. Why? Why? Why do we think that some politician or some motivational speaker or some postmodern philosophy or some body of government or some political ideology is going to save us? Why do we think that? We have the power of Christ. Why would we think something else is going to be as good or better than that? Oh, we have little faith. Oh, we have so much foolishness. Look at verses 21 and 22. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So when when we humans puff ourselves up with our own wisdom, which we are all prone to do, two things happen. Number one, our human foolishness, which we call wisdom, prevents us from hearing the true wisdom that God gives us. So we get so enamored with our own wisdom, with our own way of thinking, that we begin to dismiss God's wisdom. We begin to shut him out. That's the first thing that happens. 
But then the second thing is that it's not enough to simply dismiss the wisdom of God for ours. We also then begin to feel compelled to mock God's wisdom, which is exactly what Paul is saying here. First uh, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and in his first letter to Timothy, in chapter 6, he writes these words. But if you put these things before the beloved, so what are these things? Well, Paul had been talking about to Timothy in the previous verses, God's word, God's wisdom, and prayer. So he says, Timothy, as the pastor of your church, if you put God's word, God's wisdom, and God's prayer before your congregation, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, the wisdom of human beings, the wisdom of the world. Have nothing to do with those. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Here's how one author says it. Stay away from spiritual junk food. Eat the meat and the vegetables of the gospel. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul also writes in his second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 4, he writes this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the irony, of course, is what Paul is getting at here is that what we really want and what we really need is at the foot of the cross and in God's word. That's what we need. We're just a little bit too enamored, however, with ourselves and our own way of thinking. Verses 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul is speaking to the culture here, just as we at Redemption also speak to the culture all the time. So in Paul's day, here's what was happening. Jews were offended by the crucifixion of Jesus because they believed that a miracle could have prevented it. God could have had a miracle, could have produced a miracle that would have prevented the crucifixion of his son from happening. And so they said, well, he must not be God's son. Now, they tend to conveniently forget the resurrection, though. Three days later, he, rose, he did something better than just preventing the crucifixion. He rose from the dead, came busting out of the tomb. They tend to forget that. But then Paul also cites the Greeks of the day, too. And they saw Jesus as non-essential because in their minds, Jesus had lost the wisdom argument because he was executed. If you win the wisdom argument, you don't get executed. And so they said, well, he lost it. And so their, their wisdom, they said, trumps the wisdom of Jesus. Well, we in our culture, we also have people like the first century Jews under the guise of intellectual inquiry. They demand signs and miracles, and then they say they will believe, just like the Jews in the first century. We also have people in our culture who are like the first century Greeks, who demand that God's wisdom be subservient to their wisdom, to their desires, and to their autonomy, to their paradigm, and to their kingdom. So we have Jews and Greeks 
quote, Jews and Greeks, metaphorically speaking, everywhere in our world today, just like when Paul was writing this letter. The New Testament scholar Frank Thielman calls the demands for miracles or wisdom nothing more than a manipulation and distraction tactic. But now watch what Paul does, starting in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is Paul's thesis statement for the rest of his passage here. Look at verses 26 through 27. I'm sorry, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish of this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That sounds a lot like Mary's song, the Magnificat, that we looked at on Friday night. Okay? So verse 26, these things that Paul describes... They feel powerful in this world, but he reminds us that these are finite, false gods that are passing away. And and, and I want you to understand, there's nothing wrong with noble birth. He's not saying there's something wrong with noble birth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. He's not saying that. There's nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with education or intelligence. Nothing wrong with those things, but if you rely on them as if they're God, then you got a problem. If you elevate them above the one true God, you're going to have some some disappointment. If you expect them to fill you in a way that only God can, there's going to be a problem. It's what our founding pastor used to say, false gods never fail to fail. And then again, that verses 27 through 29, using the despised things of this world as his ambassadors of the gospel, as the ones who are going to proclaim the message. You don't have to turn there, I will. But Acts chapter 4, one of my favorite passages. Shoot, I thought I had it. There we go. I want to read this little story to you. So Peter and John have been out preaching in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go out and start preaching in Jerusalem. And many people are coming to the gospel. They're coming to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so the religious professionals in Jerusalem decide to arrest them and throw them in jail. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resur- uh, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So now the church in Jerusalem is 5,000 people. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... 
if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the same Peter who just two months earlier denied Jesus at his crucifixion because he was afraid. Same guy. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they, all of the religious professionals who had, who had arrested them, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the word uh, translated uneducated there, you've heard me say this before, is the Greek word idiotos. They said they're idiots. So obviously something divine, something supernatural has happened to them. They've been with Jesus. Because there's no other way that they could be speaking like this. There's no other way that they could be speaking with the boldness and the power that they have. It's Jesus. It's not their rhetorical ability. It's not their human wisdom. It's that they've been with Jesus. You know, there's a lot of humor in the Bible if you understand the context. Sometimes it's hard to get at that. But more importantly, take these two paragraphs together, and what you see is that God uses both the moronic content of his message, the cross, and the moronic deliverers of his message, the idiotas Christians, to save and transform a broken world. That's God's MO. That's how he goes about doing this. And he does that so that everyone knows it's not us. It's God. And then verses 29 through 31... So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So verse 31 is a quotation of Jeremiah chapter 9. So Paul, again, demonstrates his ability to use the Old Testament in order to teach in light of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He starts with a quote from Isaiah in this passage, and he ends with a quote from Jeremiah, both prophets, both of whom who pointed towards the fact that the Messiah was coming. And what he says here is summed up this way, God saves sinners. It's God who does the work. God saves sinners. It, it, again, it's, it's not the, the uh, charisma of a leader or a speaker that can save people. There are charismatic leaders. That's good. But it's the power of Christ through the cross and the resurrection that saves. And God, through the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit, is what changes our hearts, opens our eyes, redeems us. And God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It takes a lot of humility to not boast in yourself, but in what Christ has done and is doing in you. 
It's Ephesians chapter 2. Paul again writes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been saved by grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. It is this free gift that God has given you that enables you to have the faith. And then Paul, in case you're not clear on this, he says this, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. In other words, no one can boast in themselves. And then here's the legacy. Here's our legacy. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, beforehand that we should walk in them. Today's cultural race toward legacy is all about boasting in self, but God has a different legacy for us. His legacy for us is found in Jesus, his word, his wisdom, humility, smallness, and godliness. So look at it this way. Not only does the cross of Christ reverse the curse of sin, but it also redeems the broken culture around us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, it's, um, it's hard to truly express uh, not only our, our thanksgiving, our gratitude, but also even an understanding of what it is that you've done for us through Christ. We have celebrated the birth of your son, but we are reminded that he came with a mission and a purpose, and that was to go to the cross so that he could die for our sin, that we might be redeemed, that his blood would be poured out for the new covenant. And so while that was a great sacrifice that you made for us, we get to revel in that. We get to celebrate that. We get to confess our need for that. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that your word never wavers from who Christ is. We thank you that that's where we can find our strength, where we can find power, where we can find courage, and we can find hope. Thank you for that. God, help us now as we, as we continue to sing, as we come to your table. Just pray that you'd bless our time together that's, that's remaining. I pray these words would be applied by the Holy Spirit to the hearts of your people. And I pray that you would be glorified by all of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going <clears> to <throat> have our time of uh, communion now. Uh, when you're ready, if you would just come out into the center aisle, come forward. Go to one of the communion stations, one of the servers. Take the kit, take it back to your seat. When you're ready, you can open it up and take the elements. Steve and Ann are standing over here on the side too. If you need somebody to pray with, you're more than welcome to come and pray with them. Just a reminder that when you take that little wafer, that's, that's the bread when Jesus was with his disciples on the last night. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. He's referring to his broken body on the cross. He says, I'm going to go do this for you. 
And then he took the cup, and you have that little cup of juice. You drink that. That's, that's the blood of the new covenant. And he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup that's filled with the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. And every time we do that, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Paul reminds us of that. It's a confession and a celebration, a confession of our desperate need for the gospel and a celebration that God in his love, in his wisdom, and in his mercy has given us that great gift. So let's do that now.
Well, thank you very much for being here with us on this uh, Return Your Presence Day. I appreciate you being here. And Malia, thanks for leading us today. You led us uh, Friday night. You led us this morning. Thanks for being here. Let this be our, our blessing and our prayer and our charge as we go. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next Sunday.